it's interesting how cultural mindsets change over time. Today, it seems that the highest virtue that one can have in our culture is open-mindedness. This plays itself out in any number of ways, but one of the ways that it plays itself out in is you will often hear these types of statements coming from the mouths of parents. They will say, I'm not going to impose my faith upon my children. Rather, what I'm going to do is is let them grow up, and then when they're old enough, they can make up their own mind what they want to believe. Now, it sounds, on one hand, like that's a good idea. It's only fair to let them decide what they want to do on their own. And in this atmosphere where open-mindedness is the highest virtue, it seems to fit very well. But as G.K. Chesterton famously put it, merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind, as of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. Chesterton was right. So it is that when we find truth, solid truth, we are doing our children no favors whatsoever by withholding that truth from them. You see, this mindset that says, I will let them decide when they grow up and not force my beliefs upon them has a number of problems, two of which, which leap immediately to mind for me. One of them is it, it treats our faith as if it is merely a matter of preference, that it is, is somewhat similar to your favorite type of music or a favorite outfit to wear out on special occasions. This may be the case with other religions, but with Christianity, it's not just a matter of try it on and see if it works for you. Rather, Christianity is not just a set of rules, but rather a a set of propositional truths. There are truth claims which the Bible makes. And if those truths are not truths, but rather are false, then Christianity itself is false and worthless. It's not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of facts. Did Jesus Christ become a human being? Did he die on a cross for our sins? Did he rise from the dead? Did he ascend to heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. These are not just matters of preference. They are factual matters, factual questions. And if the answer to those questions are yes, then your choice of religion really is no choice at all. We, we don't leave things open in other areas with our children. If if my child were to say that he was going to climb out the window of a tent, the tenth story of a building, I would not say, well, I'll leave it up to him to decide whether or not he wants to believe in gravity. No. Gravity is a truth. He has no say in the matter. Even if he does not believe in gravity, he will fall. 9.8 meters per second squared, as I recall. 
It's not up to him. Truth matters. A second reason why, why this type of thought doesn't really work is there really is no neutral ground from which one can present this idea that I'll just let them decide because of the fact that Christianity is a matter of truth claims. Because the matter is, it, it is truth. For us to say that I'll just let them decide and it doesn't really matter is a statement against Christianity. It is a position that is against Christianity. It is an anti-Christian position. So you are not setting a neutral table, a blank slate that they can decide whatever they want to believe, but you are making a very, very important statement to your children. If you are saying, well, you just make up your mind. You are telling your children that it doesn't matter, but nothing could be farther from the truth. Instead, we read the Bible's prescription for child-rearing in the book of Proverbs, and we can see it specifically in chapter 22, verse 6, which is our sermon text for this morning. I read these words to you. This is the inspired word of God. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning humbly beneath your word, asking you to teach us from it, asking you to be living and active in it, asking you by your spirit to shape our hearts that it might be in conformity to it. Lord, work through the word preached this morning, not because of the preacher, but because it is your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to be honest with you. This is kind of an intimidating text on which to preach. It's intimidating for a number of reasons. One is because there, first of all, is some confusion about what exactly the text is trying to say, what it, exactly it means. And so that's always hard to kind of work through that and unravel the misperceptions of what it says about life under the sun. Secondly, I've got to admit, I've got to confess that it's a hard text on which to preach because I I feel that I myself have done an inadequate job of following its precepts. I I have not done all the things that I should do to train up my children in the way that they should go. I certainly long to, I certainly desire to, and I, I make efforts to that end. But I fall short, and I do so regularly. And so, so it is convicting to me to deal with this text, to look at it, to see what it has to say to us. But I, like you, stand beneath the text. I stand under the word of God. This is not merely my ideas and my thoughts that I proclaim from this pulpit, but rather I come to you with, by God's grace, a word from him. And not just a word for you, but a word for me. And so I pray that my heart, along with yours, would be shaped by this sermon as God works by the power of his spirit through it. It's also an intimidating text because it presents us with such an urgent need. It is an urgent need in our culture that children be trained in the ways of righteousness. I saw saw a, a poll just the other day where, where they asked 
teenage children up to young 20s, and they asked them all sorts of moral questions as to what they would do in certain situations. And the findings of these surveys was amazing. What they found was not just not that the children and the, and the young adults who answered were, were immoral, that they, they came up with the wrong answers and, and chose immoral answers, but rather that by and large there is a, a whole generation of children that are amoral, that, that they don't have any concept of morality whatsoever, that they, they're presented with moral questions and they don't even see them as being moral questions. The whole category of morality is completely foreign to them. This is a, this is a very, very desperate need in our culture that we be trained in the ways of righteousness. But it's not just in our culture. Frankly, it is in our church as well that we need to talk about how we train our children in righteousness. Children will not just naturally drift toward righteousness. That is not our bent as human beings. Not as children and frankly, not as adults either. We will not just drift in that direction. Decisions must be made. Steps must be taken. And God must work in and through families, both in the home and in the church family. We need training. The cultural view of children is uh, that, that little babies like Liam, we look at them and we say, oh, aren't they so sweet and innocent? And they may be sweet, but they are far from innocent. They are far from innocent. We read in the word of God, Psalm 51, David writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He says that even before he was born, even from that first moment of conception, when life began, he was already a sinner. That is because when Adam fell in the garden with the first sin, all of creation fell with him. And all of mankind fell with Adam, our father, and we became sinners at that moment. We are wrong to think that we become sinners by sinning. Rather, the truth of the matter is that we sin because we are already sinners. It is our natural bent, our natural inclination. inclination. It is the way that we will go. And so it is necessary to train up a child, not in the way that he would go, but in the way that he should go. And so I want to look at this proverb that deals precisely with this. And as we do, we need to understand first the nature of Proverbs in general. And then after we get that down, I want to look at the nature of this Proverbs consequence. And ultimately, we'll look at the nature of this Proverbs condition. But first, the nature of Proverbs in general. We need to understand, if we are to understand what Proverbs are, we first need to understand what Proverbs are not. Proverbs are not ironclad promises true 100% of the time. Often people will claim the Proverbs in such a way, but this is not how they are intended to be taken. It seems, it seems to me that this is something that's intuitive to us 
when we think of Proverbs outside of the Bible, of course, we, we understand the idea, too many cooks spoil the broth would be a, a proverb that we'd have. And we understand what that's saying. It's saying that normally when too many people get involved in a project, it, it kind of causes problems. But at the same time, we'd also hold to another proverb, wouldn't we? Many hands make light work. Which says, well, you don't want to do something by yourself. It's a lot easier when you have other people involved. Now, we understand, don't we, that, that these two statements, if they are taken to be absolute truths 100% of the time, are evidently contradictory. They can't both be true all the time because they butt heads with each other. And yet, we do affirm their truths because they're not meant to be 100% truth statements. They are general principles by which we understand how life under the sun works. It is true that when too many people get involved in a project, it's bound to get messed up because people are going to have different ideas about how it should work and, and such. And so there, there are problems that we need to be aware of. We need to be careful of that. We take necessary precautions as a result. On the other hand, it's awfully hard to do work just by yourself. And it's a whole lot easier if you involve other people. And so we understand that we want to involve other people and we let these things balance each other out and we use discernment to understand how it is that they should work hand in hand one with the other. This is how Proverbs work. This is how wisdom literature works. And that's what the Proverbs are in the Bible. In case you're skeptical that this is the case, I I would point you to Proverbs 26 where in verse 4 we read, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And I think we all understand that idea, don't we? That, that if you answer a fool in his folly, oftentimes you are drawn into the foolishness. And you become a fool yourself in that. And so the idea of verse 4 is, Whatever you do, don't answer a fool in his folly. Except you turn then to verse 5, the very next verse, which says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. That's true too, isn't it? You know, if you don't answer a fool, sometimes they just think they're wise and go on. And so sometimes the loving thing to do, really, not, not out of a place of superiority or, or condescendingly, but, but out of love, sometimes we need to correct somebody so that they won't be wise in their own eyes. And so we see these two things. If they're both 100% truth statements, they couldn't both be true. But yet we affirm the veracity of both statements because we understand how they are to be read. General principles guiding us in the way of righteousness. That's how the book of Proverbs works. There are two ways laid out in the book of Proverbs. There's a way of wisdom and a way of folly. And we understand that the Proverbs in general all work in such a way as to mold our lives to the way of wisdom. Now when I say wisdom, it's important that we understand what I'm saying. That's not just some secret knowledge that helps us to figure out what we should do in a situation, but rather wisdom is basically understood in the Proverbs to be skill in the art of godly living. It's taking the knowledge that we have and then applying it to our lives so that we might live in a godly way. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 1 verse 7 tells us, is the beginning of wisdom. Now this idea of fear is not distrusting terror, 
but rather a reverential awe that realizes our place before God, that we are to live under his sovereignty, under his authority, under his lordship, to his glory, for our good. For he is the one who formed our inward parts. He he knit us together in our mother's womb, the psalmist tells us. So we realize that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And we realize that our purpose is to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. And the way of wisdom shows us that we must embrace those promises of God, especially among those are the promise that I will be your God and your children's God. We cling to this promise. We embrace God's covenantal promises because that is what wisdom is. We embrace those promises and we live them out in our life. Thankfully, appreciating what he has done for us, realizing that it is only by his grace that we can do any good whatsoever. Proverbs provide us with the principles that are intended to guide us in the way of godly living. That is the nature of the Proverbs in general. So now we turn our attention to the nature of the Proverbs consequence. This one in particular, is, is the most common type of proverb you will find. And, and those are kind of follow along an if-then pattern. There is a condition and then a consequence. And so it is here we see, we see that the consequence in this case, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, if this is not making an ironclad promise, but generally just giving us a, a principle by which we should live life, that, you know, what, what exactly is it saying? Well, Michigan is a beautiful state. And especially this time of year that we're moving into the autumn, it is just, I find it to be majestic, really. And especially as you drive further north, more and more trees and the beautiful foliage, it is, it is just gorgeous. We took a trip a couple of years back up to Mackinac City, and, and as we drove up there in the fall, it was just breathtaking, the beauty of it. And let's, let's suppose that you wanted to take a similar trip and you wanted to go up and, and check out the beauty of Michigan as you went up to Mackinac City and you wanted to go over to Mackinac Island and see everything over there. And, and you said, Pete, how, how do I get to Mackinac? And I'd say, well, what you do, it's really simple. You just get on I-75 and go north. And it's pretty easy. So that would be my my proverb to you on, on how you get there. You get on I-75 and go north. Now, what am I saying by that? Am I saying that everybody who gets on I-75 and goes north gets to Mackinac? Well, no. Some people get off in West Branch and some in Crayling, some in Gaylord, some people, you know, maybe you get off somewhere a lot closer. A lot of people get off in other places. I'm not saying that everybody who does it gets to Mackinac. Nor am I saying that Unless you get on I-75, you cannot get to Mackinac. I mean, you could say, well, I'm going to get on 69 south, and then I'm going to go over to 94 west over past Kalamazoo, and then I'll go up the lake, and, uh, you know, eventually you'll get to Mackinac. Now, I might not be the most direct route, but you'll get there eventually. 
you can get there that route too. And so it is as we look at this proverb, we see that it's not saying that if you show your children the way of wisdom and the way of righteousness, that they will necessarily every time end up in the place of wisdom. Nor, very thankfully for many of us, is it saying if you don't show them that way, you don't train them in that way, then they have no hope of ever reaching it. It is making neither of those statements, but what it is saying is that if you have children at home, if you have grandchildren that you are part of the upbringing of, if you are one of the people who stood up earlier this morning and took vows committing yourself to assist in Liam's upbringing, what it is saying is that you need to work to demonstrate, to show, to train in righteousness the children that are under your care. And in so doing, it is all the much better for them. Because generally in life under the sun, the way it works is that the lessons learned early in life stick with us. Charles Bridges puts it this way. He says, far better instead of waiting for the maturity of reason to work upon the pliability of childhood. I like that. That's a a wise, wise word. Now this is an incredibly important task. And while it's not an ironclad promise, it is unquestionably and unflinchingly saying that this is something that you should do. Something that you must do if you love God and love your children. This is the nature of this Proverbs consequence. I want to spend the remainder of our time this morning just on the nature of this Proverbs condition. It says, train up a child in the way he should go. So what does it mean to train him up in this way? It means, like I said before, to to demonstrate wisdom to him, to show them wisdom, to teach them wisdom, to set them upon the path toward wisdom, skill in the art of godly living. This is not a new teaching. It, it is one that any Jew would have known in that day. If, if you knew nothing about your Jewish faith, but one thing, it probably would have been the Shema, the creedal statement that was recited daily multiple times in a Jewish home. It said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's in Deuteronomy 6, and it goes on from there to say, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command to you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You see, this is not just saying that those are the four times you need to do it. The point is being made by these opposites, these pairs, that, that all of life should be lived in such a way that we are talking about these things and thinking about these things. They should be woven into the fabric of our everyday life in such a way that, that we see how they apply to every part of life. Teach these things to your children. I want to ask you a question. 
and it's a question that I turn back on myself as well. Is your household life such that if somebody looked at it from the outside, that they would say, that is how that life is. That person, that family, that household, they live their life in such a way that they are talking about these things and thinking about these things as they're rising up and as they're going to bed, as they're sitting down, as they're walking along. Is all of your life intermingled with these truths? And by no means is this just an Old Testament principle. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, how is it that we might provoke our children to anger? There's any number of ways we could do a whole sermon just on that. Perhaps some of the ways just to tick them off uh, off along the... Uh, well, how about tick them off? Uh, to tick off your children as I ticked off the list here um, would be to neglect them, obviously, to not express love to them. That's probably the most important thing. We need to express love to our children. They need to be confident in our love for them. They need to not think that when they have disobeyed that your love for them wanes in that moment. I've always tried to tell my children how very much I love them. I asked them, I said, did you know that I love you? And they respond, yes. And I asked them, I said, do you know why I love you? And the answer that they respond is because I am your son or because I am your daughter. And so then I asked them, well, what about if you, if you were really bad and you disobeyed and you did lots of bad things? What if you were really mean to me? Would I still love you? And they say, yeah. And I say, why? I say, because I'm still your son. I'm still your daughter. I say, that's right. You see, my love for my children is not based on them showing up and, you know, they worked real hard and they did a good job. And I mean, they're great kids. They are great kids. But that's not why I love them. I love them because they're my children. Similarly, God loves us not because of what we can do for him. Not because we're A-plus Christians. Not because we're so special. God loves his children because they're his children. Let us remember that truth. Let us model that truth to our children. Let us express our love to them. It is an unconditional love, not based on anything they do, but rather based on their status as our children. We can provoke them to anger by overprotection. We can provoke them to anger by not having any rules whatsoever. You know, you can kind of go either way. There's lots of ways that you can do that. You can provoke them to anger by arbitrary enforcement of rules, not giving them the consistency that they deserve, that they should get in the enforcement of rules. We can provoke them to anger when we discipline out of anger. We need to make sure that our discipline of our children is not out of anger, but rather out of love. Likewise, we can provoke them to anger by withholding discipline altogether. Proverbs 19 says, Chasten your son while there is hope, and do not set your heart on his destruction. 
You see, if you don't discipline your children, you are setting your heart on their destruction, is what the Bible is saying. And perhaps this is most important. We must not let our children ever think that Christianity in particular and life in general is just about a set of rules. Rather, it is about a relationship with the God of the universe. William Hendrickson says the very heart of Christian nature is this, to bring the heart of the child to the heart of his Savior. Let that be what we model in our parenting. Let us never let it be about a set of rules that they need to follow because they're the rules. Rather, let us engender a love and respect from our children by our goodness to them so that they will willingly follow us, willingly obey us. And let that be the way we live our lives before God as his children, not striving to earn his blessing, but rather realizing his blessing that has been poured out upon us so abundantly and so graciously in Christ Jesus our Lord. And let us live in accordance with his law, delighting in his law, because of what he has done for us. Gerhard Ferdi put it this way. He said, Christianity is not the movement from vice to virtue. It is the movement from virtue to grace. It's a beautiful statement. You see, Christianity is not about taking bad people and make them good people. It's about taking people, good or bad, and having them realize the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. That is what Christianity is about. It is about the blood of Jesus poured out to cleanse us from our sins. Not about following rules. Well, who's in charge of this training? Of course, ultimately it's parents. Parents need to instruct their children. They need to guide their children. They need to lead their children. Some of you might say, I I can't do that. I'm not trained enough. I'm not prepared enough. I, I never had that modeled to me. I don't know how to do it. If that's the case... I understand. I'm no expert either. I don't have a doctoral degree in that. But we can work it out together. If you really want to grow in that, come to me. Talk to me. Go to an adult Sunday school class. Learn and grow. Grow deeper in your faith so that you can model that faith to your children. Psalm 42 says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God? Does your soul pant for God? I look at my son, who's a big baseball fan, and I I didn't set out with a plan. I said, okay, here's the 17 steps to making my son a big baseball fan. Rather, I loved baseball. And he saw me day after day modeling that to him. And he grew to love baseball too. So it is. Let our souls pant after God, longing for him. Let our home life be centered around God, yearning for him and for his blessing in our lives. And our children will see that and they will grow in that direction as well. But it is not just parents who need to do this. It is also the church. We made vows earlier today that we would stand up to that commitment, that we would be a part of, of raising the children of this church. We do that individually. We do it corporately. We have youth groups. We have Sunday school. 
And we bring children into worship in this sanctuary. And that is a blessed thing that they are here. It is a wonderful thing. Many churches usher their children off somewhere else. And I am so thankful that we do not do that. Now, is it sometimes a little bit disturbing or annoying, maybe kind of distracting? Perhaps. Perhaps. But I commend this to you. It is worth it. It is worth it for children to be in this sanctuary. I have a friend named Kevin Golden. He's a pastor in St. Louis. Just the other day he wrote something. I saw it and I thought it was just wonderful. He said, whenever parents have apologized to me for their children's behavior during church, I've offered the honest reply. I don't notice anybody's unruly children except my own. Besides, he goes on to say, one of the most joyful noises in a church is a rowdy toddler because it means that he is where he is supposed to be in church. To that I say amen and amen. At Calvary we offer Sunday school for all ages, age-specific instruction before church so that it is geared toward children at their level. But then we gather together here in the sanctuary. All ages, from the youngest to the oldest, all ages are welcome. And that is a good thing. It is a wonderful thing. Even if the preaching or the teaching or or whatever is somewhat above the heads of some of our youngest members, they will see and learn how to worship God. God. They will be conformed in that understanding and they will know what it looks like. Scott Clark talks about the benefits. He, he puts it this way. He's, he says that, that though, though it might be distracting to have children in worship, that it's worth it. He says, God doesn't mind that your emotional experience is less intense. He takes the long view Your children will grow up not segregated from public worship and the means of grace. They'll grow up a part of the community of the redeemed and watching baptisms so that they can see what happened to them. They'll see the supper administered and they'll ask, when can I have it? They'll hear the law and the gospel and they'll grow up knowing that this is their identity, that it is really true that God did indeed say, I will be your God and your children's. God. Those of you with children, take your children to Sunday school. Teach them in the home. Train them up in the way they should go, but bring them to church. And those of you who don't have children with you, do your part as well. Assist parents in bringing up their children. Maybe be a Sunday school teacher. Maybe just be an encourager to to the mom and the dad who are bringing their children here. Do whatever you can. Remember the children of this congregation. Pray for them, not just on their birthdays, but all the time. Support them. Treat them as valued members of the covenant community as they are. And when people bring their children to worship, make them feel welcome. Don't give them a snide look when their child is fidgeting a little bit. 
Don't say, boy, I wish that they'd just get them out of here. Worship is not about me, and it's not about you. It's about us all coming together, the covenant community as a whole, bowing before God and worshiping him. Let this be a church where that is done. Let us all do our part in training up the covenant children of this congregation in the way they should go. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, our blessed Father, we thank you as your children that you have loved us though we were still sinners. Even while we were sinners, you demonstrated that love by sending Christ Jesus to die for us that we might know you. Such gracious love must mold the way we treat the children of our congregation. Let it be so. We ask in Jesus' name.